Welcome to Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads on-air book club. I'm Heidi Kaiser. Over the course of 13 episodes, Severance Radio will dissect a single book, Severance, the satirical dystopian novel by Ling Ma. This book is a mixture of immigrant family story, corporate satire, and global health crisis. It's also the story of Candace Chen. Candace is a millennial first-generation American office drone who meanders her way into adulthood and ends up finding a world devoid of choice and feeling. During our live weekly radio broadcast, listeners heard an excerpt from the audiobook followed by discussions featuring literary luminaries, educators, and subject matter experts. For our podcast listeners, we leave out the book and cut straight to the conversation. Think of this as your own personal book club in podcast form. If you haven't read Severance yet, that's okay. These conversations are meant to serve as an accompaniment to the novel. Though, full disclosure, some of our guests, in addition to making insightful points, do indeed hint at plot spoilers. So read the book. Okay, got your book? Great. Let's get started. Can the end of the world as we know it bring about new ways of living? Joining me to talk about Worlds Remade are expert speculative fiction writers and creative writing professors Christopher Koch and Claire Vay Watkins. Koch is an assistant professor at UNR and the author of You Came Back, as well as the collection of short stories We're in Trouble, which won the Penn Robert Bingham Fellowship. Watkins is the author of the novel Gold Fame Citrus and the story collection Battleborn which has won numerous prizes, including a Silver Pin Award from the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. Watkins is also a former Sharing Fellow at the Black Mountain Institute. We'll talk about the imaginative work of starting over again. Enjoy. I'm really excited to talk to you two about this section of the book. I just want to start right off by noting that uh, art, Candace's art, is a really big, important part of this section of the book. Her blog, which bears witness to New York's decline, kind of almost becomes this the separate character in the in the story. You both make art that does this as well, that bears witness in a way. What value does fiction have for us, or what value does art in general have for us right now? Well, the idea of bearing witness is certainly key probably to anything, making of anything, I think. And at this moment, I think it's, I've been thinking a lot about that position of a witness. You know, I'm sitting in a valley where the mountains have been completely erased by smoke, and maybe you are too. Um... And I was reminded by um, this doc, Dr. Pauline Boss, she came up with this idea of ambiguous loss. And I heard in an interview, she talked about how like the Kubler-Ross stages of grief that we expect to go through, right? Um, rage, denial, rage, acceptance, right? Um, those are actually for the dying and they're not for the witness. The witness, Kubler-Ross wasn't suggesting that the witness was going to get to those stages of acceptance. And the, she, Dr. Bost, calls this a kind of like ambiguous grief, especially if you're not able to say goodbye. Or um, And I think like that idea of ambiguous grief and how 
alive and um, painful and complicated this particular witnessing this particular moment is um, that's that's been really resonating with me and as I was reading severance I kept thinking Candace's loss is so um, ambiguous that she can't even admit it and she just works instead yeah when I first started reading this book I was initially a little bit worried I didn't know if I wanted to read fiction about a pandemic while you know uh, experiencing it but I found myself I saying that I was cheered by it is maybe a little bit too simplistic, but I did find a lot of value in seeing that somebody else, a really smart and powerful artist, could make some sort of sense of it. Um, the making of art is always about making a little bit of structure out of chaos you know, giving some sort of shape to it. Uh, and I have always found that hopeful. You know, at least in part, as an artist myself and as somebody who uh, turns to art that wants to talk about tragedy and loss and these powerful transitions, uh, you know, I still persist in finding that hopeful. Um, you know, that's that's something that this book has certainly, you know, offered me at this time. I was just going to say that I absolutely find it hopeful, and I've been truly shocked at the amount of hope I found in this <laughs> book. And I don't even really need hope from a piece of work, I, I think, but that um, art and it, novels are really good at seeing the kind of ambiguous loss and noticing, like, we're not in a culture that's good at grief and grieving. Right. And a lot of our rituals have seemed sometimes they seem kind of empty or not well equipped for this moment, but art making that kind of like fierce gaze is the place that I get a kind of like spiritual nourishment. I mean, this section ends on Candace praying, you know, and the thing I get from the mountains is the same thing I get from art. It's just that feeling of like, you're not alone. I see it too. Yeah. I'm glad you both mentioned hope because I wanted to ask you, there's, there's something going on here with, with the relationship between destruction and creation and renewal, right? So what is, what is this world le leaving us with, the world that Ling Ma creates? Is, is, is it, you both said that it's making you feel hopeful. Why is that when things are sort of falling apart? I, there's a part of me that wants to believe, I guess, that some of the major changes I think that this country and this world require probably weren't going to happen without some sort of devastation. Um, I mean, I just think that's kind of the, the situation that we're locked into. When I read a book like this, I feel, I, I feel the same way that I thought when I was a teenager reading a book like The Stand by Stephen King, which is a novel that was really important to me when I was younger. If we can imagine what it's like for everything to be erased, then maybe there's some space you know, after that to imagine what might, what might regrow. I certainly hope the present world is not facing something as, as severe an erasure as we're getting in this novel. I persist in thinking that what we're seeing now is, is a, a, a leveling of some things that probably needed to be leveled in order for other, other structures to grow. Yeah, as painful as this moment is, and I think it's going to take us a long time to even just feel the pain of it to grieve collectively. And that's really an optimistic path that I hope we do get to walk down where we get to acknowledge that this has happened and we are all in so much pain. Severance illuminated that in its interest in work, 
I've also been reading a little bit of this work by an anthropologist named David Graeber who died recently. He was one of the early, some people say like architects behind the Occupy Wall Street movement. And he wrote this book called Bullshit Jobs. And he says technology, which you mentioned, Chris, you know, it has a bigger role in our life than he could have even imagined in 2013 when he wrote this. Technology has been marshaled, if anything, to figure out ways to make us work more. In order to achieve this, jobs have had to be created that are effectively pointless. Huge swaths of people in Europe and North America in particular spend their entire working lives performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across our collective soul, yet virtually no one talks about it. And that scar across the soul, you know, Mm -hmm. like that this book kind of pretends to be about work, but it's actually, it's looking right at that spiritual psychic scarring. And um, only then if we see it, do we have any other hope of doing something else? Another thing that Ma does that's really, that really starts to coalesce brilliantly, I think in this particular section is kind of blurring that, that all the, all the black and white dichotomies, right? And like, for instance, the good and evil, um, who's the villain in this story? Well, the corporate world is like um, a force. It's hard to say that it's villainous or malevolent, but it has like this kind of gravity. And I keep thinking like, why does she go back to work? And then it's like, doy, her parents are gone. She has no, I mean, we're beyond the point of needing like a social safety net we need like a social canopy right but she has to and um it's less psychically spiritually painful if she convinces herself that she wants to that she's doing it for the money but everybody who can has has fled and then she has to really force in the end the horror is less bob and more the building i feel itself you know yeah. Though, I mean, you know, we got to make a little space for Bob, right? <laughs> sure, sure. He does a pretty good job of being the villain. There are certainly these other forces. Um, every discussion of the uh, of, of the workplace is just sort of beautifully, speaking artistically, I, I really love the way that she has written it as, you know, this sort of constant, sinister, debilitating kind of force. It's, I think that the, the biggest thing that she well we don't know yet will or won't overcome is um the way that she's internalized the narratives of a culture that says you get your value from being productive yeah making money and i don't know about you but that was one of the first things that became so absurd to me once the pandemic really settled in the reality of it settled in i thought about waking up and being like what shall i produce today it's like who am i gonna love today like who who how am i gonna have my heart be touched by another heart today that's what i really need so obviously severance is joining myriad previous works of dystopian literature including yours claire and there you know it has its various overlaps and distinctions but it, it it does belong to that genre. Why are why are we attracted to this kind of story? Not just at times when we're experiencing it ourselves, but all the time. Yeah, it's true that we're um, 
you know, we've always been telling stories of our own end. I think that watching your society be destroyed or buried or whatever it is, is actually really cathartic and heartening compared to life as we have known it just going on. Like the idea that this is all um, impossible to change, it's destiny, it's fate, it's just how things are when it's not. They're decisions made by human beings. Like I have to believe in, in that. So maybe that that it's actually kind of this sort of perverse expression of your your autonomy your will like i still matter in the world i that's what art is it's like i'm making a mark i was here yeah no i was getting caught up in in what claire was saying earlier about um you know destroying things <laughs> effectively right like this is I think what we're seeing, I think the, the, the underlying thing in dystopian fiction is this acknowledgement that there is a lot out there that needs to be destroyed. Um, when we are reading and writing, I think really what we're doing is uh, rehearsing change. You know, change is very, very difficult. And uh, when we turn to fiction, I really am convinced that what we're trying to do is figure out kind of in advance of the big changes in our own life, what we might have to do to get there. So dystopian fiction is about societal change, um, the necessity for societal change and how difficult that is. You know, a book I know that Claire and I both like a lot is Blindness by Jose Saramago, um, which is a really startling uh, and difficult book and one that exists, I think, a lot more in the realm of metaphor than, than Ling Ma's. It does a lot of the same things, you know, it shows it shows just how hard it is for us to react to the wiping clean of a slate. Another one I think about a lot, too, is um, The Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, uh, a science fiction novel that came out several years ago uh, that wants to look at the world on the other, other side of ecological collapse. And it's a very, very difficult book, but it lays bare a lot, I think, of the problems of the current moment. You know, I, we may not know how we have to change, but these books talk about the necessity of having to do something. I think we're increasingly wondering the extent of our own ability to change and to affect things around us, especially as we notice that individual action, like the individualism that, you know, I think in Nevada, we love the story of the rugged individual, but it's actually taking a collective and interconnected way of looking at the world to handle these problems. So a lot of these writers like Saramago or um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road or um, Octavia Butler look at what if we use these tools um, that we have at hand for these unprecedented and new problems? Well, you know, they all say basically that would be a disaster, that we mm -hmm. actually need a brand new and yet also like ancient and um, like ever present type of ethic. That is actually how people have survived, you know, like the wagon train as fraught and problematic of a symbol as that is, that's yeah. a co-op, you know, going yeah. across the desert. That's how people have survived these situations is by helping each other, checking in on each other, having connections. My fear, and I think it's widely shared by dystopianness is that we don't have an, enough of that that has kind of like corroded away and that what we have left is the workplace and capitalism. I want to latch on to that since you mentioned the wagon train because you are both kind of 
I don't want to say you're rural authors, but I guess rural minded maybe is a way of putting it. Um, and, and this story has an interesting interplay between urban and rural. What did you make of the, the, that dynamic here? Well, I'm from Indiana, uh, which is territory that this novel crosses as quickly as possible. Um, <laughs> I was kind of interested in that reading through this. This is very much, you know, a, a book about urban spaces and about, you know, uh, what those spaces mean to people. The countryside, in, the countryside in this book uh, is a dangerous place, you know, uh, an, an empty place um, where bad things happen. If you if you leave the wagon train, the sort of faux wagon train they have uh, have constructed in this book. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's some. It's not just like urban snobbery that makes rural spaces into. Um, makes them scary. I think it's actually the experience that you have in your body when you feel very vulnerable in open spaces compared to maybe the city where you are not as alone, you know, like when people come to the desert, they often say, um, it's empty. It's like, you wish it was empty sister, you know, <laughs> a um, wasteland. Exactly. A wasteland. Well, that's very handy, especially if your business is storing waste. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and it, and that it's harsh that it's a harsh environment. And I think what I actually kind of try to gently get my guests to think about is like, what if what you're experiencing as the environment's harshness is actually your own vulnerability? Thanks so much to Claire V. Watkins and Christopher Koch for that amazing conversation. This brings the Severance Radio podcast to a close. We truly hope you enjoyed following along. From the teams at Black Mountain Institute and Nevada Humanities, thank you so much for listening. Severance is a 2020 Nevada Reads book selection. Nevada Reads is a statewide book club that invites readers from across the Silver State to come together and share in the love of reading. Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads book club, is produced by the Beverly Rogers, Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute, and Nevada Humanities. Support from the Nevada Center for the Book, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Nevada State Library, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our engineer is Phil Corbett. Our writer is Sara Ortiz. Production by Lily Allen, Mir Arif, Stephanie Gibson, Kathleen Kuo, and Layla Muhammad. And I'm your host, Heidi Kaiser. Thanks for listening.